Hey, you're listening to Terrifying Travels. Join two girls as we discuss a true crime and a paranormal story in a new city every week. I'm Sabrina. I'm Maddie. And I'm Grace. Hey! We, have, we are going to Manchester today and we have our own sort of kind of Manchester person. <laughs> uh, sort of. Sort of. And that twice. <laughs> Okay, that counts. So you are covering our weird facts and laws today, aren't you? Yes. (laughs) Okay, well tell us something weird about Manchester. So, the first thing that I have here is that Manchester originally was a Roman fort, and its name came from boobs. From boobs? From boobs, yes. What? The name Manchester, it comes from the Latin word Forgive my pronunciation here, I am not fluent in Latin, but <laughs> Mancunium, <laughs> or its variant Mancunium, which means breast-shaped hill. So Manchester is named after boobs. Oh. <laughs> All the more reason to go. Yes. Yes. Another fact here is that, obviously, there's quite a famous brand of cars called Rolls-Royce, obviously. Mm-hmm. Well, Manchester is where Rolls met Royce. Oh. Which is something I did not know until we were researching this. Oh, <laughs> nice. I did. You did? Oh, of course. Find I, out? I, I, <laughs> I don't know it all, but I know a fair amount. Yes. <laughs> you love your cars. Cars are a yeah, good choice. Yeah, there for that. <laughs> <laughs> so, alongside that, Manchester is also the place in the UK where the suffragette movement began, which is where women managed to get a lot of the rights that we have today in the UK. Yes. <laughs> Female power. (laughs) Now, on top of this, this is an interesting fact, but in Manchester, there was no statue of any women except Queen Victoria until 2019. Oh. So, until three years ago, the only female statue in Manchester was Queen Victoria. Which is bizarre, considering you'd think that they'd had some of the suffragettes in there, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. So did they put up, like, a new statue that was of the suffragettes? or I'm not sure if it was the suffragettes, but I know that even now, only, like, 22 to 23% of statues in Manchester are women at the moment. Oh. So there's only, like, a fifth of the statues are women. Oh. That, that okay. probably is correct to the population, right? Not... <laughs> I think there might be a few more women than men usually. A few more. Probably Just a little bit more than 22. Yeah, more than 22, definitely. <laughs> now, on top of that, Manchester United, moving on to football. I know Maddie likes a bit of football, football. don't you? <laughs> so, Manchester United is the most popular football club in the world. That checks out. It's honestly something that surprised me because I always thought Liverpool was one of the most popular ones. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I got that from the Manchester newspaper. So. <laughs> Could be a little bit biased. That one. <laughs> I, I would think that Arsenal would be the most popular. Mm, there's a lot of people in the UK that hate us. That's very true. They get a lot of hate as much love as they get. So in Manchester, there is an area called the Curry Mile. And can you guess why it's called the Curry Mile? Sounds delicious. There, there, there's a lot of Indian restaurants on that street. Not just Indian, but it does have the densest concentration of South Asian restaurants outside of Asia. Oh. So that could be like Indian, Pakistani, all from that sort of area. Ooh. Yep, sounds delicious. Yeah, You should go there. <laughs> I will personally. I'll come to Manchester. Forget Grace. I'm coming to Manchester for that. <laughs> <laughs> now, on to one of my favourite topics. 
pubs. Yeah. So there is a pub in an underground Victorian public toilet in Manchester. So this is on Greater Bridgewater Street in the city centre. If you go there, you'll find what looks like an entrance to an underground station. However, it's a really cool pub in a refurbished public toilet dating back to the Victorian era. Wow. Not sure how I'd feel about drinking alcohol yeah. in a public toilet. Yeah. <laughs> Let's be real, though. We've all done it at one at some point. So. Oh, all the oh, time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Waiting for a friend or something. We've all done it. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Now, I think, yeah, New Year's Eve took several drinks into the bathroom with us, didn't we? <laughs> Oh my gosh, yes. Finally, the last of our weird facts is that in Salford, Manchester, the concept of a vegetarian diet was birthed. That's a strange one, isn't it? (laughs) Who'd have thought that Manchester would be where the concept of a vegetarian diet was birthed? Just just the concept of it. Just Just the concept. Just like, hey guys, let's give up meat. Oh, that's a great idea, Robert. Yes, let's just do that. Absolutely. I was going to say, it would make sense if there was like a famine, but it'd be the other way around. Meat would be the only thing, like the potato famine, they just mix it with meat. That would make more sense to me, but not going vegetarian. Yeah, because yeah, being vegetarian, there's like a lot more things you have to look out for. And if there's any kind of disease, it's most likely to affect the plants a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah, so that would actually make it harder to do. Yeah, yes. very interesting. It was a rich guy. It must have been. Got to be a rich guy. <laughs> or it was couldn't someone... afford to be picky. Oh. <laughs> or it was someone very poor and they couldn't afford meat. So they were like, let's make this trendy and eat nothing but vegetables. And then that yeah, would bring I, down I, the price of meat. Yeah. I could see a parent doing that too. No, kids, we're just vegetarian today. It's fine. Just eat it. I told you to eat it. <laughs> Now, on to our weird laws. Weird laws! So, these are laws all across the UK. Okay. There are a variety of weird ones. So, were you aware that knocking on a door and running away is illegal? Oh. Yep. So, that one's one that's actually illegal because it's found to be disturbing people in their private residences unnecessarily. Good. Yes. Good, good, good. Yes. I, so, I can see it. Yeah, I can see that. I think it's illegal in the U.S. too. I can't. We have like a term for it, but I cannot remember it right now. Ding. Oh, ding, ding dong, dong ditch. ditch. <laughs> ding dong ditch. Yeah. So I don't know how they would charge someone with ding dong ditching. Just disturbing the peace, I guess. Yeah, it will be hard to find them though. I think trespassing, maybe. Private no, she means like, how do you find them once they've ran away? Though. Yeah. Oh, that too. <laughs> Ring doorbells. Our first sponsor. I'm absolutely joking. We don't have sponsors. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you want to. If you wanted to, we'd totally support you. (laughs) Now, this one's quite an old law. So, it is illegal to order or permit a servant to stand on the sill of any window to clean or paint it. I imagine someone fell one time and they're like, nope, gotta fix that. Yeah. Yeah. Got yeah. it. I mean, I feel like it was probably more than just one as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Now. I think I said it last episode. I love these laws because it's like, who did that? And now we have that. Oh, yes. we've got a really funny one coming up as well. I'm going to save that one for last because it is okay. the most ridiculous one I've ever heard. <laughs> okay. Now, another one. 
So when a whale or a sturgeon becomes beach on a, on the beach, obviously, if you find it, you have to offer it to the reigning monarch. Would you like my decaying butter? <laughs> Watch out, it might explode if you leave it too long. Oh, Ooh, I've heard about that. I've heard about yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> like, yes, we wait, king? Who's the king now? King Charles. Charles, Charles right. King Charles. I almost said George. And I'm like, no, that's the little boy. That's <laughs> no. Uh, king, we have to be like, hello, sire, King Charles. Here's this decaying whale on the beach for you. Enjoy. <laughs> I think it's like a cat when they bring home a dead mouse. Like, here, I know you can't go hunting because you're royal, but I brought you a dead thing. Yes. <laughs> so all the UK people are cats for the king. Yes. <laughs> yes, yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. <laughs> now, um, another law. So this one is actually a law that was formed in my hometown. So Easter Sunday must always be the first Sunday after the second Saturday in April. I love some math. <laughs> I'm watching Maddie's face right now and she is really trying to work out what's going on the here. The first Sunday after the second Saturday in April. Yep. So that could either so be the second or third Sunday. Right, exactly. Which is bizarre that it's specifically after the second Saturday. But because of the date of this, it was, I think, the Synod of Whitby where St. Hilda and a lot of different religious leaders got together and decided when uh... Easter was going to be. Okay. And they chose the most awkward time possible. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's funny because I know Jesus was not born on Christmas Day, but that's the day we've decided. But surely a man coming back from the dead would have been such a monumental moment. We'd know what day it was and we could just use that day. You'd think so, you wouldn't think you? So. Like, I don't know about you guys, but that doesn't happen very often. No, yeah. it doesn't. <laughs> but I do kind of enjoy this because it means that Pancake Day or Shrove Tuesday is always on a Tuesday. But it's easier to tell when it is. Fair enough. <laughs> And we love pancakes. Pancakes. Ooh, pancakes. <laughs> now. Put that in my head, otherwise I'll have to go make it. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're caught playing with a firearm of greater calibre than a common fouling piece near someone's home, you could be found 200 pound. Nice. We love gun laws. So what this is, <laughs> it's not even just guns. If you look into it, it's more referring to firing cannons. Oh. <laughs> So don't fire a cannon near someone's house. <laughs> we love gun laws. Yes. <laughs> love Even that. Even cannon laws. We'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> cannon laws. Now, this one's quite an interesting one. So if you are at a funeral mm-hmm. and like the funeral ends and you hang around there a bit afterwards, mm-hmm. that's illegal as well. So you're not allowed to linger after a funeral has taken place. You have to go straight away afterwards. But what if you're, like, really emotional or whatever? Yeah, it's like a very insensitive law. <laughs> oh, it's hmm. oh, yeah. interesting. I can just picture poor grandma stood at the funeral home, like, devastated because she doesn't want to leave. And then the police be like, right, in the back of the car. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. But, but. My, my husband. My husband. My husband. <laughs> nope, in the car, you gotta go. <laughs> You had 50 years with the man. Carry it on now. Let's go. <laughs> now, so, if you are in a British public library, can you guess what is illegal to do within a library? I'll let you both have two guesses each to see if you can work it out. Ooh, okay. Well, I can say something very inappropriate is definitely an Ill- illegal. <laughs> so that's just illegal any public place, not just in the library. <laughs> oh, in the library. 
Yeah. Oh, oh, is reading allowed illegal in a public library? Reading is not illegal in a public library. But reading, oh, reading allowed. allowed. Mm. I don't think it is. That's not the one I've got on the list, but I'm fairly certain that's that is the one allowed. I thought of too. Yeah. Oh, okay. Ooh, it's okay. probably not. It's probably older than the one I'm than this, but I would hate someone talking on the phone. Oh. Uh, unfortunately, I think this law is a bit older than phones. <laughs> okay, older than phones. Okay, that's okay. Mm. It's gonna be something wild. No bringing oh. your horse in. No, no bringing <laughs> your horse. I I was gonna say lighting candles in the public library is not allowed. But then public libraries existed before electricity, but so they had to have fire candles. <laughs> Casually burn down the library. But no, that one's not <laughs> Alexandria style. Oh my god. <laughs> ah. So our last does anyone want to have one last guess? This oh. is something I can't imagine anyone actually wanting to do in a library. Okay. Not wanting to do. Older than phones. Uh I don't know. Bringing in a fruit. Dealing books. I don't know. <laughs> probably is illegal, but it's not the one here. So gambling is illegal in a public library. Why would you want to gamble in a library? That would be the hey. quietest gambling session ever. I'm trying to imagine someone with a roll of paradise, like shaking them really quietly. <laughs> Being like, when I was in high school, the guys used to gamble behind the library. <laughs> <laughs> that was illegal too, actually, so. Probably. <laughs> but yeah, so gambling in a British public library is illegal. But I have seen people in British public libraries on the computers, clearly on poker websites. <laughs> I feel like the library should do something about that one. <laughs> well, okay. this one could be loophole. Could go back to someone being like, this is good. I bet this is going to be a great book and just really pissing off the person that didn't write it. Or I bet this is going to be a crap book. And the author was there and he's like, this is going to be illegal. I'm going to make it illegal. <laughs> that could be it. Who knows, really? Some judge had written a really fancy book and then people were placing bets on how bad it would be. And he's like, no. Illegal. Illegal. <laughs> yeah. Illegal. Now, this one, I approve of this law. So, it is illegal to jump the queue when waiting in the ticket hall of the tube. But I, I support that. I support that. Yeah. It should be illegal jumping in queues. Yep. Yep. No cutting. No, no cutting. cutting. Now, yeah. this is our second last law. So, in the UK, there are some things that you're not allowed to dress up, even for a costume party, or for the purposes of stripping. Can you guess what those might be? I am going to, because in my country, we aren't allowed to dress up as police officers. And we used yes. to belong to you guys. So I assume you guys gave us that. Yep. So we're not allowed to dress up as a police officer. There's two more things we're not allowed to dress up as. I think one of them might be easy to get. One of them might be a bit more difficult. Mm, so no police officers. Doctors? No, you're allowed to dress up as a doctor if okay. you want to. So a stripper like that could be even fine. worse. You're right. <laughs> like that's that, that's medicine. Like um. Anyway, you're a doctor. Save him. Oh no, sir. I am just a doctor on TV. Yes. Like, sir, I'm not a doctor. I'm a stripper. <laughs> Everyone oh. once. That makes sense. Is is one of them religious? No. Okay. But um, I feel like in the U.S. it could be a religion. <laughs> What the fuck was that? <laughs> no, not quite. <laughs> Probably the military, because it's connected to the police. Yep, they're dressed up as a soldier. Oh. And I know that the US has quite a lot of days for soldiers. Could pretty much be a religion, soldiers. <laughs> okay. 
We have like two days for solstice. <laughs> Maybe three if you count Fourth of July. So, police officers, soldiers, you said one more? One more. Might be a bit more, I'll give you a guess each to see if you can get this one. Hmm. A king? Not a king. You're allowed to dress up as a king, which is bizarre. Oh, okay. A judge. You're allowed to dress up as a judge. It mm. is a sailor. Oh. Which seems to be the bizarrest thing that you're not allowed to dress up as, a sailor. Yeah, because you guys have such, like, a big navy. Like, yeah. I feel like that would be a very common Halloween costume. Not even just the navy, just a sailor in general. So you could be dressed as a sailor on a merchant ship, oh, and that would true. be illegal as well. True, true, true. I wonder if at some point someone was dressed up as one, got drunk, and then accidentally ended up on a boat and ended up in New Zealand. (laughs) (laughs) And that's probably what happened. Yeah, he just at some point had to play along with it, and so they made it illegal so it never happens again. Just casually dressed up as a sailor, went down the pub, and like, oh, come on, you're on our crew. Let's go. Let's go, bro. (laughs) Then, our last law, and my favourite of these laws, well, not my favourite, but my favourite to read. This one, I'm going to let you guess it, because I think you'll be able to get this one pretty quickly. So, it is illegal to be found as something within a pub. Found is it as illegal to be sober? No, it's not sober. <laughs> oh. Is it drunk? Yep, it is illegal to be found drug in a, drunk in a pub. Makes sense. Well, it's been nice knowing you. I hope you enjoy your jail time. <laughs> I can see the cogs in Manny's brain turning right now. But yes, since 1839, so it's not even that old of a law compared to a lot of laws that we have, just under 200 years old, it has been against the law to be inebriated whilst on a licensed premises. So a place that's licensed to sell alcohol, you can't be found drunk there. Isn't that, that, what? That That's really like counterintuitive to what the pub owners want you to do while exactly. you're there. <laughs> like, like, obviously, being too drunk makes sense because they'd be able to kick you out. But to be drunk at all? Yeah. That's yeah. the whole point of going to the pub. <laughs> that seems like a prohibition era type of law. Impossible. Well, I was going to say that. I think that's another one where a pub owner pissed off a judge. <laughs> yes, that's going to yes. be it. I'm going to ruin your business, mate. Yes. <laughs> Now, so that was the last of our weird laws. Would you like to go on to the top 10 places to visit in Manchester or should we do that one a bit later? You know what? We can come back to it so that you have another go at the end of the show. Okay. Sounds like that. We get to hear you twice. (laughs) Thank you, Grace, for the laws and fun facts. Fun facts. Very weird laws, though. (laughs) Sabrina, who... Who would you like to go first? (laughs) Last week I went first, so would you like to go first? Sure, I can go first. Yes, I can do that. All right. All right, gals, are you ready to hear my case? We are. I hear it's a good one. It's a good one. It's a big one, and it's a dark one. So fasten your seatbelts and brace for some turbulence because it's going to be a bumpy ride. (laughs) So, um... Before I begin the case, I have to give a bit of a sensitivity warning. This case involves the death and murders of children, um, lots of crimes against children, torture of animals. So listener discretion is advised for this particular case. If you don't want to hear this, just skip on ahead to Sabrina's case. Um, But yeah, just a little sensitivity warning there. Um, And a big shout out to my friend Anna 
for recommending this case. And let's hop into the Moore's murders. Let's start at the very beginning because it's a very good place to start. All right. So, Ian Stewart was born in 1938 in Glasgow, Scotland. When Ian was young, Ian's mother was found to be unfit to raise him, and so he was given to the care of the Sloan family, where he changed his name to Ian Sloan. At age nine, he went to Loch Lomond with the family and found that he loved being outdoors, mostly because he allegedly tortured animals. He supposedly killed his first cat at the age of 10. But Ian was considered very intelligent and was accepted into an academy for above average individuals. Despite this, he appeared twice in juvenile court for breaking into houses and then left school at 15 to begin working at a shipyard. I can I just point out that these are checking all the boxes for signs of a serial killer? Like, all the boxes. <laughs> like, yeah, he's just got to pee his bed now. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, Ian began bouncing around, taking odd jobs, and at the age of 17, he was put on probation for threatening another kid with a knife and then went to live with his biological mother, not the adoptive mother. He changed his name to Ian Brady, taking the last name of his biological mom's new husband. Ian was charged with some more crimes and bounced various jobs until 1959, where he had a clerical job at Millward's. This is our first killer, and from now on, I'll be referring to him as Brady. And let's talk about our second killer. Myra Hendley was born in 1942 in Crumpstall. Her father was an alcoholic who was very abusive towards his wife and children. They were a very poor family, and Myra was sent to live with her grandparents at age five. Myra's father served in World War II. And when Myra came crying to him after a boy pushed her one day in the schoolyard, he threatened to hurt Myra if she didn't defend herself. At age eight, Myra, quote, scored her first victory, unquote, when she punched a boy several times and knocked him out. Myra kind of led an unassuming life. The only weird thing is that she was really obsessed with Catholicism when she was a teenager. Um, her family wasn't religious, but Myra really was, and it's not really clear as to why, but she was just super into religion and Catholicism and stuff. Um, but anyways, she also continued to work odd jobs after leaving school at 17. She took judo lessons for self-defense, although uh, no one wanted to train with her because she was, quote, slow to loosen her grip, unquote. At age 18, Myra took a job as a typist at Millwards, and so our two killers meet. I'll be referring to Myra as Henley, and again to Ian as Brady, just their last names uh, from now on. The pair began to go on dates that would follow a typical pattern. Go to the movies to see an X-rated film, and then go to Henley's house to drink German wine. And it had to be German wine, because at this point, Brady was obsessed with Nazism and was reading things like Mein Kampf and other materials on Nazi atrocities, uh, atrocities, atrocities. Always and good I, reading material. Yeah, <laughs> always good reading material. Uh, Brady shared his reading material with Henley 
Hindley, and she started to emulate Aryan race features, dyeing her hair blonde constantly and wearing the bright red lipstick. Uh, Hindley was a bit scared of Brady, telling a friend about a time that he drugged her, but Hindley was also obsessed with him and was completely captured by his charms, saying, quote, Within months, he had convinced me that there was no God at all. He could have told me that the earth was flat, the moon was made of cheese, and the sun rose in the, in the west. I would have believed him. Such was the power of his persuasion, unquote. The couple went on with their shared life, although they had strange interests. They often checked out books from the libraries on topics of philosophy and crime and torture. Hindley joined the Cheadle Rifle Club and purchased a rifle as well as a pistol, although she was a bad shot with the pistol. Uh, Brady had a love of photography and had his own darkroom where he developed um, explicit pictures of himself and Hindley. They often fantasized of robbing banks, but those thoughts never came to be. You know, just totally normal couple things that they were just really into. I um, saw that on a Pinterest board about good first dates. <laughs> Amazing, right? Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> All right. In 1963, Brady began to talk to Henley about the concept of, quote, the perfect murder, unquote. In July 1963, the couple moved in Henley's grandmother's house, and on July 12th, they attempted to complete the perfect murder. Pauline Reed was 16 years old and was walking to a, to a dance at the school. Henley pulled over and offered Pauline a ride, where Pauline agreed because Henley had a sister, Maureen, that was in the same school as Pauline. So the two sisters, the... They were friends of the younger sister. Once Pauline was in the van, Henley asked her to help them search for an expensive glove and the saddle worth more. Brady pulled up on a motorcycle and Henley told Pauline that he would be helping in the search. Brady and Pauline went further into the moor while Henley stayed back. Henley then went into the moor to find Pauline's body, nearly decapitated and sexually assaulted. Brady buried Pauline in the moor. Pauline was said to be a jolly outgoing girl who loved pop music. Uh, whenever one of her favorite songs came on, her mom would smile and remember her daughter. Pauline was recently reburied in 2018, finally raid to rest with her mother, father, and brother. And this was Brady and Henley's first victim. Absolutely disgusting and tragic and just awful so so fucking terrible like ugh. Um, yeah honestly it, it gets to the point now where i'm like no nobody needs to help me it's fine i could do everything on my own yep exactly because that seems and, to be they always he pulls up after like yeah no i'm gonna totally help as well yep 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 yeah um yeah so now let's talk about the moors a little bit because i thought that Moors were just like a really big field, but they're a little bit more than that. Uh, Saddleworth Moors is located in the greater Manchester area. It has hills and valleys and streams that run through them. Uh, the soil is very dense and only the really hardy vegeta vegetation can survive. 
Um, in the morning, they are often covered with mist and frog as it's over a thousand feet above sea level. Um, and the moors are like this mysterious wilderness, which Emily Bronte described as sinister in her book, Wuthering Heights. And after these mur murders, the Saddleworth Moors are certainly a dark destination in the British landscape. So the death and the murder of Pauline Reed was not the perfect murder. And so Brady and Henley waited until November 23rd, 1963 to strike again. Going down to the market as Ashton Underline, Henley talked to John Kilbride, a 12-year-old boy who was there at the market to help sellers pack their goods and make some extra cash. Henley convinced John to come with her as his mother and father were worried about him. She led him back to the van where Brady was waiting. They told John the same story about the missing glove and led him to the Morris where he met a similar fate as Pauline. He was also sexually assaulted and his throat was slit by Brady. Brady took some pictures of John's murdered body and then buried him in the Moors. At this point, the murders were so far apart and so different of victims that the police thought that both cases were just a case of one runaway or missing children. Although after John's disappearance, 2,000 people came out to search waste grounds and abandoned buildings, but his burial site at Saddleworth Moor was untouched by the search party. So there's just very little police work was done and Henley and Brady are not yet investigated as suspects because the victims are basically completely different, a 16-year-old girl and a 12-year-old boy. They so don't they, think there's an actual crime yet. Exactly. Like, they, they didn't think that anything sinister was happening or anything like that. All right. So the couple striked again on July 16th, 1965. Keith Bennett was 12 years old, and Henley asked him for help loading some boxes into her, her van, agreeing to take him home afterwards. Brady was in the back of the van and took the boy. Henley drove to Saddleworth Moor, and Brady and Keith went into the moor, supposedly looking for the expensive glove. Brady returned alone to Henley 30 minutes later, telling Henley that he strangled Keith with a piece of string, sexually assaulted him, and then buried him in the moor. Oh, hold on. Has she been staying in the van this whole time, or is this the first time she has been involved? She, it's... There's conflicting stories because Henley will try to defend herself later and say that she was more of an accomplice than anything and just be like, I drove them, I helped with get the kids in the car, whatever, uh, but I didn't actually do the killing. While Brady will kind of turn against Henley and say, no, she also sexually assaulted them, she helped me strangle them and all this stuff. Like, she is just as complicit. So... Later on in the case, they get the two killers to turn on each other. And so there's two conflicting stories. So we don't actually okay. know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How much she was actually involved. Keith's disappearance was reported and Keith's stepfather was named the main suspect in his disappearance and was interviewed four times by the police. They searched the entire street for Keith, but could not find him. And to this day, Keith's body has remained unfound. Oh. Yes. Yeah. 
Um, in August of 1964, Maureen, who you'll remember from earlier, Henley's sister, married, and this made Henley extremely jealous of her sister. Henley also did not approve of this marriage as it was very hasty and no one could attend the wedding, mostly because Maureen was seven months pregnant. Throughout the rest of 1964, the couple carried on as normal, getting closer to their relatives and hopping place to place. Brady supposedly became close with Maureen's husband, David Smith, uh, mostly because David also had a bit of a criminal, criminal past, and this made Henley even more jealous. And the couple settled at a new house at 16 Wordlebrook Street in Manchester. On Boxing Day, the 26th of December, 1964, Brady and Henley noticed a 10-year-old girl, Leslie Ann Downey, was alone at the fun fair in Manchester. The couple kidnapped her and took her back to their new home, where they sexually assaulted her, posed her for nude photos, and then strangled her with a piece of string. They drove her body to Saddleworth Moor and buried her in a shallow grave. The couple continued a normal life, regularly speaking with Maureen and her husband. Brady took an interest in David and became, began to kind of groom him into becoming a partner in crime. Because again, the husband had a criminal background a little bit. Um, and again, this made Henley extremely jealous, but she held her tongue as she was getting closer with her sister and niece. All right, so we're coming up on our last victim. On October 6, 1965, Henley and Brady drove to the Manchester Central Railway Station and picked up their last victim, 17-year-old Edward Evans. Again, a completely different victim type than what they've been doing. A 17-year-old boy, everyone else had been 16 and under, or a girl, or young children so this was kind of a weird victim for them i would say uh they took edward to their home where they had a bottle of wine brady then told henley to call david over to their place henley did and david arrived shortly shortly after arriving david heard a struggle in the living room and went to investigate david saw quote I waited about a moment or two, then suddenly I heard a hell of a, a scream. It sounded like a woman, really high-pitched. Then the screams carried on, one after another. Then I heard Myra shout, Dave, help him. When I ran in, I just stood inside the living room and saw a young lad. He was laying with his head and shoulders on the couch, and his legs were on the floor. He was facing upwards. Ian was standing over him, facing him, with his legs on either side of the young lad's legs. The lad was still screaming. Ian had a hatchet in his hands. He was holding it above his head, and he hit the lad on the left side of the head with the hatchet. I heard the blow. It was terribly hard blow. It sounded horrible. Unquote. David then watched Brady strangle Edward with an electrical cord. They wrapped Edward's body in a sheet and placed him in the spare bedroom as he was too heavy to carry to the moors. 
David then returned home to Maureen, where he had a cup of tea and told Maureen what he saw. The next morning, he reported Brady and Henley to the police, and the nightmare was finally over. Brady was arrested that day for suspicion of a murder, and Henley went with him to the police station, saying that Edward's murder was an accident and that Brady and Edward got into a fight that got out of hand. On October 11th, Henley was arrested for accessory to murder. Police searched the house and found the photos and video evidence for the other murders. The 12-year-old neighbor girl, who the couple often took to Saddleworth Moor, was able to identify the couple's favorite spots in the moor where they found Leslie Ann's bodies. They, they then found the other body of John Kilbride. On December 2nd, 1965, Brady was charged with the murder of John Kilbride, Leslie Ann Downey, and Edward Evans. Henley was charged with John Kilbride's and Edward Evans' murder and accessory of murder for Leslie Ann's case. The 14-day trial began on April 9th, 1966. Both of them were found guilty on May 6th and were sentenced to life imprisonment. Brady was sentenced to three life imprisonment terms and Henley to two life imprisonment terms plus seven years. So at this point, you'll notice that there are five victims, but only three charges. What happened to Pauline Reed and Keith well, in 1985, 20 years later from when they were tried, Brady went to the press and told them that he killed Pauline Reed and Keith Bennett. Police were skeptical, but to confirm it, they allowed Henley out of prison to go to the moors to find the bodies. Henley apparently never led investigators to the bodies, but made a confession of all five murders, which Brady confirmed. On July 1st, 1985, the police finally found Pauline's body after they searched for 100 days to find it. Keith Bennett's body remains unfound despite search efforts in 2003, 2009, 2012, and recently November of 2022. Hopefully, there will be another search for his body and Keith Bennett can finally be laid to rest. Ian Brady died of pulmonary disease in May of 2017. Myra Henley died in November of 20, 2002 of bronchitial pneumonia. Ian Brady and Myra Henley have a long-lasting legacy as the Moore's murderers, with Myra Henley becoming the poster child for inherent evil. And that's my case. Now, this was just the basics of this case. And this case was so big, I could not include everything within this time frame. And I tried to basically keep it short. But if you, the listener, want a more in-depth information, there's an ITV4 three-episode docuseries, a BBC documentary, and a three-part episode from the podcast Case File. So if you want a more in-depth look, check out all those resources. And travelers, stay terrified. <laughs> okay, so it is my turn now, isn't it? Yep, you're up. <laughs> so I did get a message a couple days ago that you've got a long case. Uh, 
that actually didn't feel that long though but you did warn me it was like seven pages long yes so <laughs> i my i'm gonna pretend i kept my case short intentionally but i did not i just <laughs> I, I think I do the true crime case next week, and I cannot wait, because that stuff's got to be easier to research than ghosts. Yes. <laughs> Everywhere yes, I go, they're like, nah, this ain't real. <laughs> like, well, make it real. I was originally going to do the Manchester Tunnels, which sounded super cool. I even worked in a musical reference, and then as I was three pages in, I was thinking, you know what, there are no ghosts coming out here. <laughs> oh. So I moved to another one, which, you know what, is a little different. So it's not a ghost case. It is a case of a screaming skull. Oh. So I'm covering Wardley Hall. It is a medieval manor about six miles west of Manchester. The main hall was built by Thurston Tearlessly. That is his name. Okay. Between... It, it was built by T.T. between 1547 and 1553. Um, there, were, there, were on the, there, there were buildings on the property dating back to the 1300s, though, and there was a moat on the site that had been there since at least 1292. The T family sold it to Roger Downs, the first Lord of Wardley, in 1601. It was then sold to Francis, no last name, the third Duke of Bridgewater in 1760. Over the next hundred years, it was passed down through no last name's family. Many appeared to only live for a short time after gaining ownership of it. One actually died within five years of moving in. So it's just being passed down like Robert, no last name, David, no last name, blah, 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 blah. Yes, that's exactly it. The no less same family is just passing it around. Oh my gosh. Do you think um, that's hyphenated or all one word? Um, <laughs> I think it's hyphenated. I think no, la no last married into the name family. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes. thank you, Maddie, thank you. Yes. <laughs> okay, so obviously during the next hundred years, um, finances were changing a lot, so a lot of Things are being changed in the in the house, um, which were actually called small acts of vandalism. I think we would call those renovations. So big small acts DIY. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I found the word small acts of vandalism. Alrighty then. So yes. So these small acts of vandalism included dividing the main hall into smaller rooms. So rather than one big hall, they just had a lot of bedrooms or offices. Home offices are, are important now. And they dropped down the ceiling a bit so that they had a second floor, which is, that's a pretty big act of vandalism, but okay. Uh, as of 1930, it became the home of the Roman Catholic bishop. Uh, in the area after the land around it was purchased by the church to be a cemetery and only half of the moat still is, still exists which is really sad i love moats moats are great moats yes. are great and also rid of one yeah <laughs> yeah also check religion or cemetery off your haunted area bingo card <laughs> yeah it's just 
no, that doesn't sound right. Right. <laughs> Especially, actually, keep that in mind because the Roman Catholics are going to come up in a second again. They actually play a really important part of the story that I just completely forgot about until now. Awesome. Or that connection. I didn't forget about the Roman Catholics. I forgot about that connection. Gotcha. <laughs> so for more than 200 years, the manor has also been known as the House of the Skull because there's, act there's an actual skull displayed inside the house. And there are two theories as to where that skull came from. One theory is that the skull is of Roger Downs, but not the same Roger Downs as the one who bought the manor. A whole new Roger Downs. He was buried in the family vault when he died when he was 28, uh, when he was decapitated in a bar fight. Oh! Um, <laughs> well, stuff like this must have been rather common for him, as he was described as one of the wildest blades at court and an undoubtedly vicious character. Apparently, his skull was then sent to his sister at the manor. Why? We don't know. What a lovely Christmas gift. However, this was disproven when the family vault was opened much further later. They wanted to prove that it wasn't him. And his skull was, his skull was actually found with his body. It was missing the top portion of his skull, but that might have been from an autopsy. Oh. But the majority of his skull was, in fact, there. Now, the second, much more likely theory is that the skull is of St. Ambrose Barlow, who is related to the Downs family. Born Edward Barlow in 1985, or sorry, 1585, he took the name Ambrose when he became a Benedictine monk. He went to school in France and Spain, as Catholics were not allowed in England at the time. But in 1615, he returned to England to minister in the area around Manchester and Liverpool, which still was not allowed. Um, I think because one of your kings wanted to divorce. Probably Henry VIII. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, we can always reference. That's just going to be our one. It's not going to be musical references. It's going to be that musical reference. Yes. <laughs> I, I also I acknowledge that he is a real king and not just a musical. Yes. <laughs> In 1641, Ambrose and 200 people celebrated Easter Sunday Mass. Since being Catholic was still not allowed, a mob of 400 men arrested Ambrose. He spent four months in jail before his trial, September 7th, where he was found guilty of being a Catholic priest and was sentenced to death. And he made no attempt to hide it. He knew exactly who he was and he wasn't going to hide it. He was drawn and quartered on September 10th. Uh, on the way there, he was holding a wooden cross he had made while in prison. His head was then removed from his body and sent to Manchester to act as a warning to others. It was put on a pike, and if you wanted to be Catholic, you could end up like him. Ugh. Yes, and as I'm saying this, I realize that trigger warning should just go for the whole. <laughs> <laughs> we are covering true crime and ghosts. Yeah. <laughs> okay. However, it just gets so much better. His then, oh, we're past that. It stayed there until one of his relatives, also Catholic, rescued the skull and brought it back to the Wardley Hall, where it remained for many years. St. Ambrose was canonized on October 25th in 1970. So his, his acts to be Catholic, whether, he, whether England liked it or not, made him a saint. However, much further forward, in 1745, I can't do numbers, a lot of renovations are being done 
due to damage from battles or simply from neglect. A wall from the chapel on the grounds was removed and they found a casket containing a skull, which apparently still had a full set of teeth and auburn hair, which is the same hair that St. Auburn, St. Ambrose had. While this doesn't prove anything, the fact that it was found in a chapel suggests that it was an important religious person. And in 1960, tests were carried out on the skull, and they determined that, that it did belong to a man roughly the same build and age as St. Ambrose, and the skull had been violently removed from the body and placed on his pike. So sounds about right. I love forensic anthropology like that. I absolutely love that. <laughs> oh my gosh. We can right. tell so much just from bones, like, ah. Uh, oh, it's crazy how, like, King Tut, they can just look at his bones and be like, yeah, so he was 19 and he died from a bunch of diseases. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. Right? Okay, so the skull is now referred to as a screaming skull. Screaming and shrieking could be heard around the, mo the manor even before the skull was found. So they were very confused as to where the screaming was coming from until they found the skull and everything just made sense then. Absolutely not. That doesn't explain anything. <clears throat> when it was found, the current owner at the time decided to just throw it in the moat. We don't want this skull. What could possibly go wrong when you throw an ancient skull that you found in a church in the moat? Well, a giant storm is what went wrong. The likes of which had never been seen before or since is a quote. So St. Francis immediately had the moat drained and the skull was returned to its original position. I'm not sure if the original position is the casket it was found in. It was also said that it was found behind or beside the stairs in the main hall, which is actually where it is now. It was just behind the wall and now they've put it in a glass case. So a little bit of confusion there, but it, it went back to its original place, wherever that might have been. Unfortunately, others would also try to throw it away, understandably, who wants a screaming skull, but they would all have to retrieve it um, or face similar disasters. Others would try burying it and weird things would move around the house and weird events would happen, all until they would go dig it back up, put it back where it belongs. Some tried to smash the skull to bits and burn the tiny bits to ashes. And all night they would hear screaming and shrieking until the next morning it would be sitting on their doorstep as if taunting them. Put that thing back where it came from or so help me, so help me, so help me. <laughs> you know what? And that one's name was Boo and she screeched. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just... Just stop disturbing the dead. Just let them rest. Just, just like. I mean, I get it. I wouldn't want a skull of any kind, especially a screaming skull in my house. But I think I would put back in the wall, not tell anyone, sell the house and move. Yes. 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 Um, it will also scream even if it was simply put in a new spot. It has its spot by the staircase. That's its spot. Don't move it. Mm. It is. That could be why it's now behind glass, not just to keep it safe, but to keep it there. Uh, apparently it is in the condition of the current lease that it is not to be touched. Oh, so so it's like, it's kind of like uh, the doll, Annabelle and Robert the doll. Yeah. Like they're just in their glass case. Like don't, don't touch, no touch. Just leave it there. Leave, leave it. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
I couldn't find as much about this, but they did say it would be bewitch. Oh my gosh, this is going back to your dolls. It would bewitch anyone who disrespects it. Ooh, yes. Yes. <laughs> and I just, I love, again, Robert the doll. People go up and they insult him and it's like, listen, whether you believe it or not, I've just heard so many stories. I'm just going to walk by. Yeah, yeah, I'm just going to be like, hi, Robert, how you doing? Okay, have a good day, goodbye. <laughs> yeah, and there's a skull in front of me. I'm not going to insult him. Just, yeah. sup, man, hope you have a good day, bye. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> okay, however, this is not the world's only screaming skull. However, they seem to mostly be in England and are attached to people who had horrible lives or violent deaths, much like St. Ambrose with his drawn and quartering. Yeah. Um, I read about a man, and I'm going to bring it home because I always bring it home. I read about a man who was a slave on a manor. He refused to be buried on the land he was a slave on, and would and his skull would scream whenever it was they buried it there. Um, he was only rest he only rested peacefully after he was brought. He wanted to be buried at home, but they couldn't bring him all the way back to the Caribbean, so they buried him just far away, and he did find peace there. Hmm. He was from Nevis. Oh. Yes. And nice. the podcast I listened to kept calling it Nevis. And every time, I know it's pre-recorded, but every time I screamed, <laughs> just, it's, it's, it's an E. It's hard E. Nevis. Yes. yes. Okay. However, I also heard of stories of other families who have just accepted their screaming skull and almost view it as a member of the family who, quote, likes to make his opinions known. <laughs> That's looking at the bright side of life, for sure. I, those are just the chillest people on the planet. Like, oh, yeah, yes. that's, that's Henry. He just, we made pancakes, and he just don't like pancakes. It, it's like it's like they're treating the skull like a dog. It's like, yeah, yeah, dog barks a lot. He just likes to be heard. Yeah, yeah, open the door and let him in. He just wants in. Yeah. <laughs> However, others would kill you with a year of move, within a year of moving into the house. Oh. So and that sounds like a case I should be covering. Yes. <laughs> But that is St. Ambrose, and I really hope he, like, I don't know, he was canonized, so the Catholic Church has recognized that he died for his religion. I don't know what it'll take for him to, you know, move on peacefully. Yeah, just be at peace. Yeah, Rest but he, he did die a really terrible death, so I do understand him terrorizing people. I would be curious if, if a Roman Catholic family moved into the house. Mm. That would make a difference. Yeah. Just terrorizes anyone regardless. Yeah. Cool. So that is it for my story. Um, all nice my sources will be one day when we make a blog. <laughs> all my yes. sources will be there. Yes. Grace, would you like to make it more positive with some places we should go in Manchester? Yep. So according to TripAdvisor, it may have changed at this point, but this is the top 10 places recommended by people on TripAdvisor for Manchester. Yeah. So at number 10, we have the Greater Manchester Police Museum. So this was an 1879 police station that is complete with the original cells and charge office and a magistrate's court above it. And if you want to visit, it's open every Tuesday for drop-in visits. And during school holidays, the hope to open on Thursdays as well. So if you ever have a chance, that could be a nice place to go. Hmm. All right. 
The next one, number nine on our list of places to visit, is the Manchester Central Library. So it's quite an impressive. No building. gambling. Yeah, no, no gambling. gambling. <laughs> don't go gambling in there. So this looks like a really nice library. I don't think I've ever been to this one. I'm not sure whereabouts in Manchester it is, but it looks really cute from the outside. Very old building, very impressive. Lots of really good architecture as well. Mm. And some nice books, maybe. Our option number eight would be the Manchester Cathedral. So one thing about cathedrals in the UK, and I'm sure many places, that a lot of them are very grand buildings, mm. very beautiful. Mm. Don't have to be religious to visit them at all. They're just very beautiful to have a look at and see everything there. So this one looks very impressive and a good recommendation for people. There could be tunnels under that as well. Possibly. Who knows? Yes. Maybe a couple of bodies in the tunnels. Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> there actually were. That's the only exciting part I could find on that case. Ah, uh, ooh. <laughs> now, numbers seven on our list of places to go to in Manchester is the Manchester Museum, which is a museum for the natural world and many cultures that it lives in. So they have T-Rexes, fossils, amphibians, reptiles, and you can even hand, you can even handle some of the objects from the collection and take part in some hands-on activities. So I think this one would be good for people of all ages, really. Nice. I like that. When I was 12, I went to the Dinosaur Museum and he gave me a fossil and I'm holding it. And he asked me, what do you think this is? And you know, it kind of it kind of doesn't look great. I think I know what it looks like, but what is it? It was it was petrified dinosaur shit. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't put that in 12 year old's hand. I did scream and throw it back at him. Oh, my God. You know, it's, it's how many like million years old. It is not at all poopy anymore, but that's not how it went in my head. Yeah, yeah, yep, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Number six on our list of things to do would be the People's History Museum. So this is a museum of democracy telling the story of how it has developed in Britain, the past, the present and hopefully the future. So if you like politics, democracy, having a look into how this has developed, it could be a really interesting visit, that mm. one. Nice. Nice, nice, nice. Next one to visit would be the Manchester Art Gallery. I haven't been to too many places in Manchester, but it does feel familiar, this. So this might have been one of the places that I did get to visit. And if it is the one I'm thinking of, it was absolutely gorgeous with some fascinating art. Ooh. So if you do like art, if I remember correctly, I think it was free to enter as well. Ooh. So a good cheap option to do, because I know sometimes when you're on holiday, sometimes things can get a bit pricey. So yeah, a nice free things. option is good. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and obviously, if you like art, perfect place to visit. Yes. Our next one is one that I think many people would be interested in. The National Football Museum. Oh, yes. <laughs> so this probably would be something for everyone. But if you do like football, it would be somewhere to go and see. You can have a look at the fortunes of all the national teams on display. You can have a look at England on the World Cup stage and have just a look at a lot of these interesting things if football is your cup of tea. Mm. Yes, yes. Next, we have another museum. Museums are very popular in the UK, lots, they are all over. Lots of museums, yes. But this one is the Science and Industry Museum. So it houses the world's oldest surviving passenger railway station and the world's first railway bleh, railway warehouse from 1830. Ooh. So if you like a bit of science and industry and you want to see how it's developed over time, 
that could be a really interesting one. Well, Australia. especially from Manchester, because you guys kind of led the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, yeah, so there'll be so much in there. Very interesting to look at. And it says that they have daily demonstrations of things in there. So that could be really interesting to have a look at how things were done. I, I heard railway and I was like, trains, <laughs> trains. I love trains so much. Oh, my God. Now, another one for our football fans is the Etihad Stadium. So this is a big football stadium, brings the magic of the city to life. So you can visit the changing rooms, walk down the players' tunnel onto the pitch side, sit next to Pep Guardiola in the press conference room. You'll be able to have a look at everything there. And they have a variety of different tours with various different languages from French, German, Italian, Mandarin, Spanish, Korean, Arabic, Portuguese, and obviously English as it is in Manchester. Yes. So that could be a really good one for everyone to visit. Do, do they have matches there still, or is it just, like, display only? I'm not 100% certain. Um, I think they might have matches there, but obviously when there's not matches on, it will be wasting a bit of space there. So yeah. you can turn it into, like, an experience yeah, store and check course. that out. Earn money for the stadium when even there's not matches on. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course. I think more football stadiums should do things like that as well. Absolutely, yeah. Because a lot of them are very impressive, like, buildings that they've put together. Yeah. Absolutely massive. Yes. And our number one place to visit in Manchester, according to TripAdvisor on the day of our research, is the John Rylands Library. So this is one of the world's finest collections of rare books and manuscripts. They open on 12 noon, at 12 noon on Mondays and Sundays. And honestly, just looking at the building, it is one of the most beautiful buildings I've seen. Not so much from the outside, but when you're looking at it from the inside, absolutely breathtaking and gorgeous. Would highly recommend if you are a fan of like architecture, rare books and old manuscripts, things like that. It could be very interesting. I think I've heard of this library. I watched like a, a documentary about... Uh, yeah, William Shakespeare's, like, first manuscripts are in there. Oh, I didn't know that's why they were kept. Yeah, wow. Yeah, they, they have, like, some of his, like, first manuscripts there at the John Rylands Library. They did, like, a whole documentary about preserving Shakespeare's manuscripts. Like, I knew that sounded familiar. Oh, my gosh. I love that. Well, I guess that's where you're going tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Take pictures. Yes, maybe. Alas. <laughs> The trains aren't running, so I don't uh, think we'd be able to get there at the moment. God, look, train strikes. I came doing a railway strike. I can't oh. get anywhere too fast. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, you could just walk. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? There's always that friend that just thinks it's a short walk. <laughs> it's me. I am that friend. <laughs> it's, it's me. me. Hi, I'm, I'm the problem. problem. It's me. <laughs> Okay, so not even just musicals, just music. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Yes. Fantastic. Yes. Okay, so is that everything? I believe that's everything. <laughs> that's everything. Thank okay. you so much, Grace, for joining us. It's been lovely to join you guys. It's been lovely having you. I mean, I haven't heard your voice in almost exactly a year. Oh, oh. Yeah. I didn't realize it was that long. Oh, no. <laughs> Me yeah. and Grace were like, it's been six months. And then for you, it's been a year. And it's like, oh, no. Yeah, because I think Maddie came over 
Well, Maddie and I had New Year's Eve dinner, and then Grace came over shortly. I think you guys did come over in the new year, and I was sick. So you, no, Maddie came over, not Grace, because I was sick, and she couldn't stay long. Mm, yeah. So, yeah, I haven't seen Grace since 2021. Would it have been Christmas when we had rice for Christmas? <laughs> uh, I definitely would have seen you after that, because that is, like, two weeks. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> but, oh. yeah, it would have been quite brief because I was just trying to throw all my stuff in my house at you guys yes yeah we took quite a few things of that though <laughs> you did yes. you like, although I, I will say though Maddie made it all the way to Mississippi with my hand-painted wine glasses yes and I'm so glad they made it there but I'm a little jealous if I had known they wouldn't break I would have kept them oh <laughs> if I had packed them though they would have broke that just means you have to come to Mississippi and get them from my mom's house. Like, oh, yes. Yeah. So I'll just leave the stuff under my shirt and she'll be like, what's that? I'm like, nothing. My boobs are weird. <laughs> what would that be? Three-week road trip? <laughs> Three-week road trip, yes. <laughs> oh, I absolutely would. If I wasn't in school, I'd be in Mississippi. I loved my time there. Yes. Yes, it's yes. Well, actually, Maddie, where are we going next? I believe we are actually going to Mississippi next. We are Mississippi bound for our episode in two weeks time. So thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Catch us in two weeks for our Mississippi, our trip to Mississippi. Bye. Bye. And stay terrified. Stay, stay terrified.